Walter Lippmann, uh, very young Walter Lippmann, wrote a book in that period, as you I'm sure know, called Drift or Mastery. That was a choice his generation, young people in the in the in around 1910, the, the choice that his generation faced, and he argued they should not just drift, but reach out to try to master the circumstances in which they found themselves and move the country in a different direction. And that's actually what they did. They didn't just drift. We know they didn't just drift because we could see those curves turning in the years after, not just the immediate, it didn't happen overnight, of course not, but it, it the, the trajectory of the country changed. And so the argument of our book is, we find ourselves in a terrible situation in America. I don't think anybody in America thinks where we are now is great. The number of Americans who think we're on the wrong track is at an all-time high. And how could you not be? I mean, everything has gone wrong. And we can just drift with that and say, well, you know, you know, it was it was nice in the middle of the 20th century. That was nice, but that was historical accidents, and there's nothing anybody did to make it better. They just happened accidentally for a whole bunch of historical accidents to get better. That's what I hear you saying. And I understand that argument. That is, in fact, the argument of people made back in the Gilded Age. But that's not our, the argument of our book is not that. Our, the argument of our book is, no, no, there were some people back then who actually tried to change things, and especially younger people, and especially at local levels. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Robert Putnam, professor of public policy at Harvard University, and the author of the highly acclaimed book, Bowling Alone which is probably one of the most influential social science books published in the last 30 years. He's won more prestigious awards than I could possibly list. His latest book is called The Upswing, which was released earlier this month. In The Upswing, Professor Putnam argues that American society was mostly individualistic in the 19th century, but after the First World War, it transitioned. The country became more what he calls we-focused rather than I focused, a development which lasted roughly until the mid-60s and then things uh, sort of degenerated to the hyper-individualism that we all know and love today. He and I have a pretty intense debate about the causes of the quote-unquote we-focused moment, and he's more optimistic that the we mentality Americans once had for that brief period can be rebuilt. I'm not, but hey, I could be wrong. He and I also had a real disagreement about whether or not there is such a thing as cancel culture. And I share my own story about being canceled, or at least an attempt to cancel me, which uh, you know, I think it's fair to say I overcame. Anyhow, this was a very heated conversation, but I think ultimately very productive. Robert Putnam. Let's start off with your upbringing for a moment. How much did growing up in small town Ohio, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the town was called Port Clinton. How much did this experience influence your decision to start studying the loss of community in America? Well, let me answer that in two ways. I'm sure it influenced it a lot, actually, but it wasn't conscious. And it was only later on when I look back at the fact that I've ended up spending the last half to two-thirds of my career studying community, did did I realize that, in fact, it was being influenced by where I grew up? I grew up, as you say, in a small town, 5,000 people, Port Clinton, on Lake Erie. This is the middle 1950s. I graduated from college, uh, from high school in 1959 from Port Clinton High School. I was really good in science and math, and I 
went off to college. Uh, that was the Sputnik era, and there was a kind of a sense that it was a national duty for people who could do science and math to go into science or mathematics or engineering. And I was good at it anyhow, so I did. I went to college and, and was initially a physics major and then a chemistry major, and I was doing pretty well at that. I had to take a course, a, a distribution requirement in political science in the fall of 1960, my, my sophomore year. 1960 was the year in which John Kennedy and Richard Nixon faced off for the presidency. And I, I know, Duncan, that it sounds like I'm completely avoiding your question, but I'm not. I'm ex actually explaining your, the answer to your question. I heard Kennedy with my own ears say, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I thought, even now... That and it's changed your life. It did. I, the, the hair on the back of my neck. Now, I'm, I'm almost 80, and I was barely 20 then. So this is 60 years ago, but still the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. Because I was an adolescent, and I thought he was speaking directly to me. And I thought, how can I be helpful to the country? And I gradually decided over the next weeks and months that I wanted to get to study because I, I was good at school. So I wanted to use my skills to try to understand American society and politics and history to see whether I could make some contribution in that way. And it turned out that way. I mean, that's, that was an unbelievably important moment in my life. Usually people can't, you can't name the moment when your life changes, but for two reasons. One is that- well, It's I also was, interesting that it aligned with such an important moment for the country. It's true. Absolutely. I was going to say, in fact, that moment turns out to be important, not for me personally, but for the history of the 20th century, then this new book that I've just written called The Upswing, that moment is a very crucial moment in the history of the country. It was crucial to me personally in terms of what I did. I just want to add before we go back to the public life issue, it also was crucial to me in a different way because that co-ed that I was with at that moment, she and I are still hanging out together. We're now 80, both of us. And, and you know, so far, so good. We ended up having seven grand, I was having two, two children, seven grandchildren, and and we both love each other very much. So that was a pretty important trip to Washington. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I would say. That's a, that's a lot of hanging out together. So <laughs> let's talk about the Kennedy moment. Sure. Here. So I would say, in my estimate, and I, I would imagine you would agree, that that speech that you heard in many respects, more or less, was the high point of American social cohesion, or if we want to use communitarian ideals. And then you know, within the next couple years, if not almost exactly at that moment, it starts to decline. And so obviously the upswing in many respects is trying to explain both the rise of social cohesion, both economically, socially, politically, culturally, that you chart as having not actually been that strong in the 19th century at least not in the late 19th century, but then starts to increase at the turn of the 20th century and then really starts to solidify around 1920 and increase over the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s into the mid-60s and then decrease in the exact almost mirror image reversal over the 70s, 80s, 90s, the aughts, the 2010s, and now here we are, the 2020s. So, why did social capital in America, to use your phrase, social capital, which we'll get back to later, why did this decline over the last 55 years? Well, 
You know, it's you. Thank you. You've correctly summarized the argument. I just want to make sure that our listeners understand the overarching sure. theme in the book and what your your main argument is about this. You call it a reverse U-shaped curve, and the curve that you refer to, and you have many graphs in the book where you basically argue that over the period that I just outlined, basically from the beginning of the 20th century to the, it's a little bit later than the middle, right? We're talking the mid 60s. There's greater economic equality. There's more cooperation socially, according to all markers that you track, stronger social fabric. There's a growing culture of solidarity. And all this goes in a very substantially escalating curve up until the mid 1960s, almost the exact moment that you just described when Kennedy gave that famous speech that influenced yep. you. And then very shortly thereafter, it goes on an exact reverse decline. Yes. So why did why did this happen though? Why, why? Well, I will I will answer that question, but allow me to say first of all that there were two pivot points in that history that you've just described. One was a pivot point in the mid 1960s, exactly as you said. But there was also a pivot point around 1900 when we went from the Gilded Age into this more moving in a in a, a more we direction from being so socially isolated to being a, more of a we. And I think both those pivot points, the one around 1900 and the one around 1965, are important. We looked really hard at using all the tools of social science to try to figure out what might have caused this reversal in the 1960s. That's the question you're asking me. And Part of it, at least one reason I, I thought before we did the research, that it must be that some, some external factor like uh, globalization or, or whatever might have caused inequality to start growing then and that inequality caused everything else. I thought for a, actually for a long while, this must be basically just an economic story. The economy changed, things became more unequal and all the other stuff that you talked about, the social fragmentation and the polarization and so on, were just a consequence of the economic, the growing economic inequality. The one thing I can say for sure is that is not true. And the reason that I know it's not true is mm -hmm. that the economic inequality turns out to be a lagging variable. It doesn't change until about, it doesn't change direction, I mean, until about eight or 10 years later in the, in the early 1970s. So Whatever else caused this, it was mm -hmm. not driven by economic inequality. Now, among the other variables, and this is the this is the problem with trying to answer your question, they all turn at almost exactly the same time. the The metaphor that we use in the book is if you're looking at a you know a, a, a flock of seagulls, say at the at the shore, and they turn direction, they all turn. It looks like they all turn simultaneously. It looks like there's no one bird that first it turns and then everybody else follows. It's simultaneous. And these curves in the book, the social and cultural and economic and political curves, are like that. They all turn at exactly the same time. And so you can't figure out which might have caused it. And you can make a, you know, you can make a case that it might have been, maybe it was the political changes. It might have been, and this is relevant to the period we're in now as a, as a country, it might have been to some extent backlash against the civil rights movement. It it might have been Maybe it was a little bit the the changing terms of, of of economic inequality. I'm more inclined to think it was a cultural change. As you know, for shorthand, we call this curve that you've described the I we I curve. We start off in a very mm -hmm. self-centered, very individualistic, very unequal, very polarized, very chaotic, very narcissistic world in, around 1900. That's the I period. Then we spend the next 65 years moving toward a we America. 
in which we're all in this together. And then the period we're talking about now, the mid-60s, we turn back in the other direction and become an, a more I society. And now we're at the apotheosis of I right now in America in 2020. So the question you're asking is, well, Absolutely. what caused the change from moving in an I direction to, move, um, to moving in a we direction hits this peak of we-ness and then turns around? And I have no very good answer to that question, frankly. I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't, for example, some people think it might be the size of government that some people, especially conservatives, think it might be that, you know, we got big bureaucracy and welfare state. But we had a big bureaucracy and welfare state up to that point. And all during the New Deal, the, we were moving in a we direction. And I'm happy to go through the list of suspects. We lined up, we had, had a lineup and we ran through all the suspects. And none of them sticks out really as being unique and causing this. Can I offer one that, I, that I'm that sure, i not sure I saw sure, you discuss sure. in the book? I didn't get to read the entirety of the book, but I, I read as much of it as I could. And one that strikes me that does fit this curve that I didn't see discussion, but again, I could have missed it. This actually follows, to a great extent, immigration restriction. So the, some of the first immigration restrictions were in the 1890s. Then there's a few more, if I'm not mistaken. They're small in 1910. But then really, of course, the big one in the early 1920s, that's the biggest, most restrictive period of immigration initiated there. And then that period of very highly restrictive immigration continues, obviously, until the mid-60s. And this isn't a pleasant thing to think about, but isn't there something potentially in terms of the social, cultural, and yeah, even matching political homogeneity that those restrictions induced. Yes, actually, we do spend uh, a little time talking about that in the book. You just haven't gotten to that section of the book. But I can summarize for you very quickly. If you look at just the curves, the this inverted U curve, the argument you make is plausible. The growing immigration restrictions in the 1920s, they they begin to be relaxed not fully, but there begins to be movement toward relaxing them in the in the fifties, and and then in, as you say, in nineteen sixty four, is the the immigration system changes. People actually at that time had no idea really what the implications were going to be, but they they changed it, and then immigration with that sixty four change, there becomes more immigration into the United States, and that's so that's. That's what you just said, and I'm agreeing that's, that's factually true. The problem is when you actually then go to look to see whether when you go down below that gross parallelism, can you think of a plausible reason? For example, one of the, one of the curves that we look at at some time is family formation, the degree to which people get married and have kids or don't. Early in the, early in the curve, there was a lot of people, there were around 1900, people, many people never got married. And of those who did, many of them didn't have kids, and, and they mostly got married late. And that then changes. People get married earlier and have kids up until the 60s, and then that turns in the other direction. And it's, it's part of the same curve. But why would immigration have an effect on that? This is, we're talking about ordinary native-born Americans. Why would they stop getting married and stop having kids in synchrony with, with you know, the number of immigrants through, coming through the doors? It that doesn't make a lot of sense. The same thing is true for joining bowling leagues. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I'm, of course, I'm using bowling leagues as a metaphor. As you know, I wrote a book uh, 20 years ago in which I was called Bowling Alone, in which I talked about the rise and fall of, of membership in organizations, growth in membership in the bowling league and the Rotary Club and the trade labor unions and church attendance and so on. All those things, we were more and mm -hmm. more joining from 
from 1900, basically, until 1965. And then we turned and stopped going to the bowling league and stopped going to the Rotary Club. Same people, same America. I'm talking about people who were born in this country. Why would the fact that there are more people who speak Spanish living in uh, Texas, why would that affect my desire to go or not to go bowling this weekend with my teammates in here in New Hampshire? I just can't see that connection. I do think that there's a cultural thing that is, I think that to some extent, the opening of the gates to immigration in the mid-1960s reflected a fact that we had become more comfortable as a we. We had developed a more expansive sense of we. And we were willing then to kind of, you know, forego these immigration restrictions that we'd imposed early on in the in the I period of the 20th century. So the I period, I think, if I'm describing it correctly, is Gilded Age through let's say the end of the First World War or closely thereafter, you're going to say we're, we're more excessively I. And then after that, from the, say, mid-20s through the 30s, and then, of course, very much strengthening in the late 30s into the 40s, 50s, and mid-60s. So that period of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that's the period where we really start to strengthen we. Yes. And then mid-60s, into 70s, 1980s, 90s, aughts, 2010s, 2020s, that's where the we starts to quite dramatically and vociferously decline into another period of what you call I-ism or hyper-individualism. And all I'm noting is that it was in a period, it was the first I period when we became very ethnocentric and, and opposed immigration and locked the doors. That's what happened in 1920-21, as you say. And then when we unlocked the doors, I think this is not an accident, when we unlocked the immigration doors was in 1964, right at the peak of weeness. We were at that point comfortable with our we. We were a more tolerant, more encompassing country. And it's not an accident that mm -hmm. that's the period in which the civil rights movement occurs and the, and the opening of the doors to immigration. And now that we're back down in an I period, I'm talking about now, really, for the last 10, 15 years, once again, there's been a rise in, in opposition to immigration and, a, well, really not much progress. We've seen that since, since the civil rights movement, there's not been much progress toward equality for black folks. The more I America is, the more ethnocentric we are, and the more we we become, the more open white folks, people born in this country, the more open we become to a more diverse dem demography of the country. Now, I'm not saying that's going to always be true. I don't know whether it's always going to be true, but that's, that's the way I read the connection. In any event, to come back out a little bit from where we've gotten, I'm agreeing with you that there's a correlation between the fraction of the country that is native-born, the degree to which we are up at the we part of that curve. Well, so I want to I want to throw out a, a few other historical arguments that try to explain this reverse U I we I curve that we just described here, and some yep. of which I've kind of detailed in my own work, which I doubt you had too much time to look at. But so I'm going to throw out a couple, actually a pretty long list of historical oddities that I think explain some of this. So in the 1910s, 1920s, the progressives, so called, instituted one of the largest, if not I would say, in my view, very much the largest war on dissent in America's history. They imprisoned or deported socialists, anarchists, syndicalists. They also instituted, and I've detailed this in my work, the largest campaign to destroy 
an immigrant minority culture and German Americans, and it was quite successful. So they destroyed the largest, what let's say, heterodox ethnic political culture during that time, instituting mass conformity. So that's right at the beginning of this period, at least mass conformity amongst German Americans. And then politically, as I was just mentioning, heterodox, non-liberal thinkers of the socialist, anarchist, syndicalist, etc. variety. But then we already went over immigration restriction. We don't need to cover that. But that happens, by the way, and I would argue not coincidentally right after that, only a few years after. And of course, that has an effect on cultural homogeneity. Then the Depression happens, which strikes great fear into elites, which allows some of the more needed Keynesian you might call progressive economic reforms, but there was great resistance for many decades up until then. And of course, we were late to the game in building a welfare state much later than most other industrialized countries, certainly far later than Germany and even England, who would be our closest, let's say, ancestral development comparison. Then, of course, in the middle of that, there's a world war that creates massive government spending to stimulate the economy And of course, there's a rally around a flag effect. There was a rally around the flag effect in the First World War, but then there's yet another rally around the flag effect there in the late 30s and early 40s, which is then followed by, I would say, a third massive rally around the flag effect coming with the Cold War and this matching perfect ideological contrast in the Soviet Union and the threat of that. Then following that in the 1950s, there is again institutional pressure for political conformity coming from McCarthyism. And then the last one, which you've kind of already alluded to, is this enormous spike in church attendance that happens post-World War II. So those are all sort of historical anomalies that I think help explain the I-we-I curve that you described, this reverse U-curve of people behaving, I would say, in a somewhat anomalous way, at least for our, in my view, very individualist, if not hyper-individualist political culture. Any thoughts on those? Well, you've named a bunch of historical accidents. Everything you said was true. I don't quite see how that adds up to an explanation. You more or less described the facts. It, by the way, was the people who were very anti-German and crushed dissent around 1920, or 19- 18, 19, 20, that period. You're absolutely right. It was terrible, really repressive. It was not progressives who did that. It was conservatives who did that. It was not progressives. Wilson <laughs> certainly took part, and, and Roosevelt was a cheerleader. I documented it in my work. Okay. Well, I should read your work. I'll just shut up. Wilson, he hired the attorney general, both of the attorney generals, Mitchell Palmer and then Gregory, prior to that. So those were his hires, and he was vociferously anti-German. And then Roosevelt, I could show you many texts from the time where he was quite frequently using hate speech. He was also on the board of many of these vigilante groups. So I could be wrong about many, but at least one. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of historical contingency going on in terms of this building of a kind of homogeneity in American culture. And some of those contingencies, I would argue, are not replicable. And we're not going to have two world wars successively in a 20-year period again that's going to create a massive rally around the flag effect. And many of the other things, like we just discussed, as you, you were saying yourself, crackdown on dissent in the 1910s, regardless of whether or not you want to attribute it to progressives or conservatives, I'm going to say that it's both. 
that's obviously something we don't want to replicate again. And then in terms of immigration restriction, whether or not we decide that was absolutely the key thing or that's not something many people have much patience for today. So, Well, I should read your theory. I should read your theory. Well, no, I was just saying, so if I'm correct in any of the things that I outlined being contributors to the I-We-I curve that you describe between the beginning of the 20th century to the peak of this kind of social homogeneity in the 1960s, if I'm right that those things were major contributors, I don't see them as replicable. And that's that's one of the things that kind of gives me some dismay uh, and a lack of hope that these are things that we can rebuild. And so give me some hope. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. Give well, me some reasons that we can take this curve and build it back up. You've ignored the part of the book in which I do that. That's why I'm a little, I don't know what to say. I've, you, I, you've given me your theory of, of part of that curve. And you haven't asked me about the earlier turn. You asked me a lot about the 60s, but you didn't ask me about the earlier turning point. America was America in 1890 was in a circumstance very much like America today. America in 1890 had extremes of economic inequality, great extremes of, of economic inequality, the biggest gap between the rich and poor in 1890 than ever in our history until now. America in 1890 up to 1900, was about as polarized politically as it's ever been, except for the Civil War. And now, America in 1890 was extremely socially fragmented. America in 1890 had the worst degree of of racial equality, or in other words, the highest degree of inequality, the worst condition for blacks, in our history. That period from 1873 to, 18, to 1900 or so was terrible in the South, hundreds of people being lynched every year and wasn't as bad as slavery for sure, but it was worse than anything before or after until now. And now we're having, and it's now been shown over the last two weeks, most Americans have realized in effect, it's not literally lynching, hanging people from, from trees, but it certainly is a lot of black people have been killed without benefit of law in recent years. So a lot of things were similar. A lot of things were true in 1890 that are true today. And the argument of the book, that's why you haven't talked about the title of the book. The title of the book is The Upswing, and the object of the book is to see, well, what happened then? They were in a situation very much like us today. And there were two options that people who didn't like it, there were a lot of people who didn't like it, there were two options that people in, I'm talking about people in 1900 who were looking around the country at a country very much like ours, great inequality, great social uh, upheaval, great political polarization, great racial distress, and a lot of cultural narcissism, self-centeredness in that period, just like now. And here was their choice. Should we just drift along figuring this is inevitable, this is the way modern life is going to be, it's going to be terrible, and that's drift along, go with the current? Or should we try to master those changes and decide ourselves we're going to try to change the direction of the country? Indeed, Walter Lippmann, a very young Walter Lippmann, wrote a book in that period, as you I'm sure know, called Drift or Mastery. That was a choice his generation, young people in the 
in the you know, around 1910 that the choice that his generation faced, and he argued they should not just drift, but reach out to try to master the circumstances in which they found themselves and move the country in a different direction. And that's actually what they did. They didn't just drift. We know they didn't just drift because we could see those curves turning in the years after, not just the immediate. It didn't happen overnight, of course not, but it, it, the, the trajectory of the country changed. And so the argument of our book is we find ourselves in a terrible situation in America. I don't think anybody in America thinks where we are now is great. The number of Americans who think we're on the wrong track is at an all-time high. And how could you not be? I mean, everything has gone wrong. And we can just drift with that and say, well, you know, you know, it was, it was nice in the middle of the 20th century. That was nice, but that was historical accidents, and there's nothing anybody did to make it better. They just happened accidentally for a whole bunch of historical accidents to get better. That's what I hear you saying. There are a whole bunch of historical contingencies, accidents, non-replicable, and, you know, lucky them they got to this period of greater equality and so on. And, but that was just a historical accident and there's nothing that can be done about it. And our, I understand that argument. That is, in fact, the argument of people made back in the Gilded Age. But that's not our, the argument of our book is not that. Our, the argument of our book is, no, no, there were some people back then who actually tried to change things and especially younger people and especially at local levels. And we made that argument I mean, that, that book was put to bed uh, six months ago. So it's not like we're, we're, we were reflecting on the pandemic or the inequality, I mean, or, or, the, or the economic bad times. Or we weren't re- certainly weren't reflecting on, the, on this most recent racial upheaval. But actually, I think, so I, I'm not for a second saying we predicted, <laughs> for goodness sakes, this largely youthful and largely peaceful mobilization over the last several weeks you and I may disagree about whether we think that's a good thing or a bad thing. I happen to think it's a good thing. Of course, no one wants violence on either side, but the awakening of this of young people and this the whole there's been a huge shift in the in the mood of the American people about the need for changing our direction. And I have to say that I think this youngest generation, not just the millennials, but the Z, whatever they're called, the Generation Z people, are so far at least kind of acting in ways that our book asked or suggested that they should do, that is emulating the reformers, the progressive reformers at the turn of the 20th century. That's that's my answer to your question. That's what I, I do not want to drift. I do not want America to drift. And it, maybe you do. It sounds a little bit like, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. That's wrong. But when I hear you say, well, you know, Bob, it was there. Were, it was good times back there, but it was just a series of historical accidents. God knows why it happened. They were unrelated. No theory. Nothing happened. Just, you know, one damn thing after another, and but we can't repeat that. Well, let me clarify my argument here for a moment. So that's not what I would argue. I would argue that those were contributing factors and that we always need to recognize historical contingencies, right? I mean, if we really want to understand any kind of major historical calamity, we have to understand the, con- the contingencies that contributed to it. Sure. Obviously, if we under- want to understand why fascism rose in Europe, we need to understand the calamities that contributed to it. I would say the exact same is true for positive things that happen in history. We need to understand the contingencies that contributed to it in part so you can not necessarily expect that those things will happen again since, you know, we're responding to an argument that I haven't made. Let me outline what I would argue. I would argue that to an extent you're giving progressives in the book more credit, and I would say even in your description here, than they deserve. For instance, so I would argue that a lot of the positive things that came about in terms of greater economic inequality, especially, occurred outside of progressivism. I would contribute a lot of that 
two people who were very much on the margins of American society, populists, but also socialists. And mainly I would attribute it to the rise of the labor movement, which, as you know, was quite viciously and violently cut out of American life for decades and decades. I mean, it isn't until Franklin Roosevelt's administration that you really even have the full right to strike. And so those battles that started to take place in the last quarter of the 19th century, the Pullman strike obviously being the high point, which is the first time Eugene Debs is in prison. He gets imprisoned later again. And progressives are, including Brandeis, are on the court putting Eugene Debs in prison for speech. There's this massive crackdown and resistance to labor that progressives were not entirely on board with. I mean, Wilson you, you, is not, I don't think... I don't want to interrupt your flow of thought, say, but your readers maybe ought to be told that in our book, we discuss exactly what you're talking about. That is the populists and the socialists and the, mm-hmm. especially above all the labor union movement, we discuss that in great detail. So it's not like we don't understand and think of those people as being contributors to the progressive era. There's a lot oh, of debate about saying, well, who is a progressive and who's that's not, the- but the progressive era, the progressive era, I don't want to have an argument with you about whether Debs was a progressive in a in a narrow partisan sense, I do want to argue that, well, your listeners might think from what you're saying that the Putnam and, and his colleague in this book simply ignore unions and socialists and populists and the other popular movements of that era, which is nothing could be further from the truth. We discuss that at great length, especially unions. We spend a lot of time on unions. I'm not trying to say that you did. If, if that's the way it came across, that's not at all what I was trying to say. Well, go ahead. I interrupted you. I only wanted to say, yes, yes, you're right. All those, yeah, all those yeah, no, forces that's not, were that's part not of... what I was trying to say. I was trying they to were my part of a progressive era. So when you say they're part of a progressive era, that's the part that I don't agree with to a certain extent, is that I would say that the populists and the progressives, and Wilson's a very good example, he hated the populists and resisted them, and he hated the socialists. And Roosevelt also hated the socialists and had a strange kind of pseudo relationships to populists that I would say is not too different than Trump's relationship to populism. Trump is a pseudo-populist. He's not really there. I would say Teddy Roosevelt's of a similar variety. And I would say that the progressives represent, in my mind, a certain kind of contempt for working class and, for lack of a better word, middle American folks. That contempt is still there in contemporary progressivism. And And I would say that we should be a lot more worried that we're going to go through another massive, and I think the evidence is quite clear, it's happening in academia and in media all over the place, that the latest um, upheaval, one of its most longstanding after effects is probably going to be this massive crackdown on dissent throughout academia and throughout media. And I think that this directly grows out of the progressive tradition, which I would connect to the original progressive tradition. And I would say that Yes, there was a lot of good intentions with the original progressive tradition, and there's a lot of good intentions with the contemporary progressive tradition, but there's also a lot of authoritarianism mixed in it that should worry us. And that kind of, I would say, top-down, technocratic, snobby, they were anything, they were word, anything but top-down. They were anything but top-down. They were bottom-up. They were marching in the streets. They were not top-down. The women's movement and the and the union movement who, and who, the, the progressives and the people. Yeah, I mean, you are offering a particular interpretation of progressivism, which I agree has it has a historical pedigree, 
that idea that the the progressives, capital P progressives, were a, a a an authoritarian elite that was a common historical view in the history that was written in the 1950s and 1960s. You're replicating what was the common interpretation of progressives in the 1950s and 1960s that they were all little authoritarians. I, and I so I recognize the argument, but that most historians by now, a hundred years later, have discarded that interpretation, that sectarian interpretation of the progressive era. But you know, look, I'm not I, I'm not here to argue with you about, you know, I was here, I thought, to articulate the argument of this new book, I'm Shannon Romney Garrett and I had. I'm not trying to argue. I'm trying to discuss. So I'm saying I think that there's reasons to be. No, you are trying to argue. You're trying to, to offer a different extent. interpretation of the progressive period. That's argument. And I'm I'm happy to argue with you, but I think that careful historiography over the last twenty years has discredited the historical interpretation that you are offering of a particular period. Well, we can disagree. Somebody you reference in the book frequently, well, at least I would say frequently, but a few different times, Christopher Lash and his theory of the culture of narcissism. And you would, I think you would agree that there's been a great deal of narcissism rising throughout the culture post 1960s. And of course, his book, The Culture of Narcissism and The Minimal Self and many of the other books that he wrote at the time offers a very detailed explanation for this rise of cultural narcissism, the rise of the therapeutic state and many other things and new ageism, the new left, and he's going to say the new right as well, or all take part in this. Well, progressives are part of that therapeutic state tradition. And with that, Lash puts forward a, an argument very similar in a, you know, to the one I'm putting forward, which is he argues that you can divide U.S. history up into a conflict between progressives, and he calls them progressives of both the left and the right. I hear what you're saying, uh, and I admire. I knew Christopher Lash, and I admire him a lot. But I have to say, he was not a historian. He was a cultural theorist, very brilliant. And I, you're right. We do cite him because I, he was an early one of the earliest people to notice that America was becoming more narcissistic. But he was not a historian, certainly not a historian of the progressive era. So I don't, I, I repeat what I said. I think that the, insofar as we're going to have an argument, which we are having, about um, how America moved into the good we period, you're saying it's a bunch of historical accidents. I'm saying no. I'm saying that I think there were pe- choices that were being made by by people in the progressive era that moved America in the right direction. Um, and you know, you're, you're right. We, you and I have different interpretations of history. I have tried to say, I think mine is a little more consistent with the you know last 20 years of interpretation of the progressive era. But Christopher Lash is not a witness on either side of that. Christopher Lash was a brilliant man who did describe the emergence in the period after the 60s of driven both of, of, of narcissism, driven both by the new left and the new right. And I, I agree with that. That's why we cite him at some length in the book on precisely that point. So you and I agree about Christopher Lash. I don't think Christopher is or would have called himself a an expert on the progressive era. In True and Only Heaven, which is his second to last book, he goes into great detail analyzing the progressives. And even in the book... Um, I'm forgetting the title. I think it's called Social Radicalism. It's one of his early books. He does the same thing. And he did teach in a history department. In intellectual history circles, he's considered one of the preeminent historians. And so his interpretation is pretty similar to mine, is what I'm saying, Bob. And there's this disconnect 
I understand it's similar to yours. The question is, are you are you and he right about that history? That's all. I agree that you and he, I, I accept your word that he's that he's a witness. The question only is he a qualified witness on the question of what was happening during the progressive era. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Robert Putnam, author of Bowling Alone and his brand new book, The Upswing. I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Today I'm speaking with Robert Putnam. So the progressives have failed over the last 45 years to do the kind of things that would build up back the social cohesion or social capital, to use your term. And I, I just, I think it's quite clear that they're in a period of stasis. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Bernie Sanders campaign and all the work the Obama-Clinton uh, quote, Democratic establishment did to derail it both in 2016 and then this time in 2020. Bernie Sanders is not a progressive. Aside. Bernie Sanders is specifically not a, a progressive. He's a socialist. He says that. He keeps saying it. And you may be right or well, wrong. He's a social democrat. I mean, he's not a... I'm not sure that this conversation is leading us any useful place, but go ahead. I'll listen. Well, what I was saying is when I when I went through the last chapter yesterday, and there's a bunch of vignettes of various progressives over time to build up that culture. And I would say, in my view, that culture is a failure and that we need something entirely new. It seemed like your main hope for building back up the I-we-I curve was to kind of revisit. And that's where I just wanted to push back on you a little bit about that. I I, I hear that you're pushing back. I think... If your listeners should read the book, they'll be, they'll be able to see the kinds of lessons that we draw on from the progressive era. We don't draw specifically policy lessons, as you know. We draw lessons. I'm a little surprised, frankly, because I have read some of your stuff, uh, Duncan. I'm a little surprised that you object to the to the uh, prescriptions of that last chapter. One of the things that we say, for example, is that. Productive change in America occurs from the bottom up, not the top down. We argue at some length that we America needs a strong federal system, by which I don't mean strong federal government. I mean a strong system in which a lot of the creativity is coming from the bottom up, not the top down. Now, I, I, there, I'm a little surprised that you don't – that is, I guess, the 
the single most important lesson we draw from the progressive era that it was it was largely bottom up and in in its origins and in the parts of the progressive era that we uh, recommend today. We also note that the progressive era was the people who carried through the progressive period were largely very young people, way younger than you or me. Actually, they're they were they're people in their twenties mostly, and into their thirties. And we draw the inference from that that a lot is up to the, the millennials and the Gen Z folks today. And I don't know how you would feel about that. I'm very Pardon? worried about that culture. I mean, teaching them political. I mean, I've been teaching political ideologies courses for the last ten years, and I'm very worried about the culture of millennials. Almost none of them, unless they take a class like mine or some of the other types that we teach at Skettle, know what liberalism means, Bob. They don't seem to understand that free speech is essential to liberalism. I know that many conservatives in America claim that free speech is under attack in American universities. I actually have been in, lived in universities my whole life, and I don't share that view. I think it's 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 not true. It's true, of course. There are some people, some extreme left wingers who want to shut down free speech, and there are some extreme right wingers who want to shut down free speech. That, of course, is true. I mean, I think free expression is is under assault today, but it's not somehow unique to the people that you're calling progressives, and it's certainly not unique to young people at all. That's a, that's a meme. That's the idea that young teenage progressives are shutting down free speech in America is a meme that is widely shared and distributed by a particular part of the American conservative movement. And I just don't think it's true. I wouldn't call myself part of the American conservative movement. I wouldn't call myself a part of any movement. But let me share to you, with you what, what happens if you challenge these folks. So when I was going through my PhD program at UT Austin, All I did was make arguments very similar to the ones that I've ended up publishing in peer-reviewed pieces in a classroom. Doing that in a classroom got a professor to claim to all the rest of the faculty that I was quote-unquote racist and quote-unquote sexist without referring to any words that I had ever used. They then, Bob, dissolved all of my avenues to funding, like TA ships or uh, what are called, you know, teaching your own classes, but it's called teaching assistantship. For four years, I had to go get another job because I was I'd already had two master's degrees at that point and another department teaching to fund my education. This went on for four years. And the only thing that I would argue is really remarkable about my experience is that I was ever allowed in the program to begin with. Because if you don't abide by the identity politics norms in almost every single humanities program, social science program, you'll never even get in. And then and I, this is still true for me today. If you don't do work that aligns with that ideology, a lot of times you won't even be allowed to present at conferences. And I think it's sometimes hard for people in the baby boom generation who haven't experienced as much of this, who are already in a secure place inside their careers to realize how vicious and how narrow the boundaries are in terms of what ideas can be expressed. Because I'm not even somebody, I, I would say, of the political right. I'm, I'm determined to be outside the left and the right. And it's stifling. You, you can't really do much of anything to challenge these notions or else you'll be shut down. And you'll be shut down not just at academic conferences, but in publications. They won't send out your pieces for review. You'll be shut down in terms of trying to publish in an academic press. 
You won't be able to publish anything in uh, mainstream media outlets. I've, I've experienced quite a bit of it directly, and so I would... I'm so sorry. That sounds like a terrible... I don't mean to, don't mean to interrupt you, Duncan. I keep going. And a lot of people like myself are afraid to speak out about what's happened to them. And I have so many friends of mine who have been in programs who have withdrawn from the programs because they just see no future for themselves in academia because it's so stifling. If you're not doing something on race, gender, or orientation, you're practically unemployable. In fact, I had people say, why are you even bothering to finish your degree? Because you'll never get a job. And I mean, obviously, the academic job market is horrible, but it's especially horrible for anyone doing anything heterodox. And the media market isn't much different. I mean, you're not going to publish something, Bob, that challenges any of these ideas, even slightly, even if it's from the left in you know any of the mainstream places, not the New Yorker, not the Atlantic, none of this. They're not going to give you a green light. And this is my argument. And if it's Aggravating. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm um, on the contrary, Duncan. I experience and contemplation. I'm that, on the contrary, Duncan. What I want to say is, it sounds like you've had a terrible um, experience, and I'm sorry for that. I'm sure I would be as yeah. I mean, it, it hasn't angry been as you easy. are I'm if not, that I'm not happened necessarily to me. Trying to, well, I'm trying to say is that there's a real concern about this in terms of how this kind of squelching of dissent grows out of progressivism. And what I would argue is that we're seeing a second wave of this. It's been growing for, I would argue, decades. And, and if you're not on the outside of it, it's hard to see. And you're a very reasonable person who does work that I greatly admire. And so thank you. I bring this up in part, and this is a lot of my work is trying to show people that there's something outside of a lot of these major interpretations. And I hope that you're right, that American community is something that we can rebuild. I and mean, you said earlier, it seems like I'm cheering on the dissolution of the country. That's that's not at all my No, I didn't mean that. Desire. I meant, I I meant it seemed to me... We can rebuild it, but I'm trying to figure out how. Yeah, well, we all are, and I am too. But I, I, I hear the pain that you've been exposed to through no fault of your own, and that's too bad. Well, it's no longer raw, but yeah, it, it's horrible. And many, many people don't even, they decide not to even go to graduate school anymore because they see no place for themselves. And I think it's, it's only going to get worse. And I want to I shift for a minute, though, to talk about social media, because one of the things that you had said in one of our email exchanges was about social media. You know, what role is it playing in this kind of what I would call social deterioration and squelching of, of viewpoints? But is there a positive? Can any of social media, in your view, be turned around into building genuine and productive social capital? I would say, and this was true in a book I wrote 20 years ago called Bowling Alone, which argued that there was a decline in social capital in America. And there will be this fall a 20th anniversary edition of Bowling Alone. The only change is there will be a long chapter at the end, and afterward, which addresses the question exactly. I am agnostic about whether the internet is going to move things in the better direction from my point of view or a worse direction. I suppose more than just agnostic, I guess I would say I'm a little bit of a skeptic. As it happens, the question that you've asked me, since the first book was called Bowling Alone, and it talked about the decline of bowling leagues, obviously it's not about bowling, it's about connection. And the question being asked now in this in this afterward is, can Facebook replace bowling leagues? And or more generally, can virtual ties replace face-to-face ties? And I started working on that uh, chapter on the internet in February of this year. And almost 
immediately the world began a massive real-time experiment on precisely that question. What we've been doing the last, the last four months is trying to figure out, is it true that social media can replace face-to-faceness? Because we no longer can see our neighbors, but is, a, is an app called Nextdoor, is that better than actually going to see your neighbors or worse than seeing your neighbors? How about working at home? Is that better or worse than hanging out with your, your mates? And I don't actually have a thesis here except to say that and I'm actually just about to finish the last three or four pages of that afterward. Now, actually, as soon as we finish this interview, what I'm going to do is go back and finish off that afterward. But the conclusion will be, I don't see it. I don't yet see that social media, they have a lot of advantages for sure. And I spend some time talking about them and my grandchildren, I've got seven grandchildren, and they all use social media for lots and Mm -hmm. lots of things, but they don't have unique virtual networks, all of their ties, all of their the, the ties that give meaning to their life and add, add uh, fun and, and opportunity to their lives, they're all networks that are simultaneously real and virtual. That is, they use their virtual ties to connect with people that they know in the real world. That is, their friends mm-hmm. on Facebook are actually real friends. And to the extent that that's true, well, that that's fine. But to the extent that we imagine that there's some other virtual world out there that is different from and better than the face-to-face ties, I'm skeptical of that. That's So can we use the internet to, to try to supplement face-to-face connections, to supplement real social capital? Yes. Can we use it to replace it? No, I don't think we can. And so that's true. Actually, you and I may or may not have similar views about the about the the racial protests of the last two weeks. I actually think the fact that mm-hmm. it's been done peacefully and, and cuts across racial lines, that is, the as many of the protesters are white as as black, not that's not true everywhere, but it's certainly true in many places. There were there was here in, in the little town in New Hampshire where I live, eight thousand I'd be sorry, six thousand people, all white. There was a demonstration march a week ago today that was uh, a mile long, 800 people in a town of 6,000 all out there marching. I think that's fabulous, actually. Now, they got there in part using the Internet. So the Internet, in that sense, from my point of view, was constructive in allowing people to get together. But it was not a virtual march. It was a real march with real friends and real passion and so on. And so that's what I mean when I say I think that the Internet can be used as a tool, just as the earlier people use the telephone not to have some separate world, the telephone world is different from the real world, but to make connections in the real world easier and quicker and 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 maybe the internet can do that. So I there's a lot of studies though that are very disturbing about social media's impact on kids, especially yeah, that's right. the rates of suicide and depression. I don't disagree. Indeed, I <laughs> I just yesterday finished writing five pages of this chapter on exactly that, how the the tendency of screen mm-hmm. time all sorts of screen time, actually, but certainly a Facebook type stream time. And that is associated with social isolation. And that's because if you think about virtual ties solely in isolation, which is what happens when these kids just spend all day long basically being alone except for some fictitious character on the web, that's bad. I mean, after all, I'm the guy who thinks loneliness is bad. So, I, yeah, you're right. I could go on a great length about all those studies you just described that, that FaceTime is bad. And actually, I think we will we'll see that in, sadly, that's one of the consequences that will flow from this period of enforced reliance on, on social media. Have you heard of this concept called the filter bubble? 
Have you read yeah. that book or heard of the concept? Ab- absolutely. I know exactly what that's talking about. Algorithms that force us increasingly into listening only to people like us. The risk of that, I talked about in Bowling Alone 20 years ago. It was called cyber balkanization then. That's the term I use then. But that is that mm. you're, the algorithms that companies like Facebook and others use to feed us, things that comes into our, you know, our Facebook feed or our Twitter feed or whatever, those increasingly, that filter increasingly surrounds us with views that don't question our views, but that reinforce our views. And I think that's what you mean by the filter bubble. And I agree with that's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. That is not so much in the intrinsic, actually. Remember, the algorithm is there. Why is the algorithm there? It's there because Facebook has a corporate interest in getting you to see and read lots of things. So they feed you stuff that will that will increase your anger. They don't feed you stuff that will question your views. That's why it's called the filter bubble. It's the filter is the filter that's imposed by Facebook or the other, the other internet companies in their commercial interest. And do I think that's a problem? Absolutely. I think that's a problem, but that's not intrinsic to the technology. That's, that's a feature of the business model they have and business models. Right. This is a period in which the, the leading technologies of our era which are largely internet technologies, have become controlled by massive monopolies. And that's exactly what was happening in the Gilded Age. Exactly. That's why I think the comparisons are so interesting. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the internet then. It was steel and oil and coal and so on. And those massive monopolies in that Gilded Age period stifled competition and stifled progress and, among other things, increased the inequality in that society. And then the progressive era, one of the things the progressive era did was, not perfectly, but to try to take on those monopolies. That was a central theme of that, of that era. And I think it should be now, too. I think that the, the, the monopolies that are held by, I don't want to pick on Facebook, it's just the most visible of them, but, but, but these, these tech companies, it's their it's the business model. You can pick on mod- Facebook. I don't think they're going to have many defenders. I think you can go right ahead and pick on them. All I'm trying to say is, I'm trying to make a slightly subtle point, which is, I, I'm in response to your point about, about the filter bubbles. Absolutely. I agree completely. That's terrible. It's debasing our discourse. It means that people are less and less likely to talk to someone they disagree with. That's awful. And all I'm trying to say is that's not built into the technology. That's largely a function of the business model that these monopolists have adopted. And just as before, exactly as in the previous progressive era, there are things we can do to control that. It's not like we're hapless here riding on the waves of history. We can can do things to control that. So I don't know if you had a chance to read the thing that I sent over email, but I proposed that actually an entirely new political system and political ideology to match it. And one of the things I propose in that, which will be published in sometime soon in the next couple of weeks, is making mobile devices, smartphones, etc., controlled substances, at least for children. And um, I'm curious if you've heard of anyone working through trying to make new social media platforms that are less intended just to make money and profit and induce addiction, which is kind of what you had alluded to, that many of these choices in terms of how the apps are designed, certainly not chosen for social good. But is there anybody working on... Oh, there are a whole, str- there are a whole lot of people. There are a whole lot of people who are working on, I would call them social-friendly apps, but they are at the moment at the mercy of the way in which people raise funds for startups. So, I, for example, a, a former student of mine 
I had some a really good idea for how to create use internet technology. This he had this idea probably a decade ago to use internet technology to make it easier for you to connect with your neighbors, and it was it was successful. I mean, he, he actually rolled out this program in I don't know a dozen places all across America, and it was successful. But he was effectively run out of business mm-hmm. by a another app which is called Nextdoor, which got a whole mm-hmm. lot of startup money from you know Silicon Valley, and so. Yes, are, are there people out there who would like to do it? Absolutely, the, but the the current way in which purely, pardon me, purely market forces drive developments means that a nonprofit doesn't have any chance. One last question about explaining the I we I curve, or what you call the reverse U curve of the build of social capital in the middle of the twentieth century. So, someone like Robert Bork, who wrote Slouching Towards Gomorrah, which was published around the same time, at least within a couple of years around the same time as Bowling Alone. He wrote famously in that book, every generation represents a wave of savages who must be civilized by churches, families, and schools. And of course, he goes on to postulate that it is because we are not civilizing through strong churches, families, and schools that this is what explains social decay. And of course, he doesn't use the term social capital, but he's certainly referring to similar ideas. What would your response be to somebody like Bork? Well, to begin with, I'd suggest that he read the book I published with uh, David Campbell in 2006 or 7 called American Grace, which was entirely devoted to the study of religion in America. It was very sympathetic to religion in general, and the book was very widely praised, won awards for being um, a serious academic but very sympathetic view about the role of religion in society. And we showed, for example, that people who go to church a lot more often are nicer. That is, they're more likely to give money and not just put in the offering plate. They're more likely to give money to the secular causes. They're more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to help old ladies across the street and so on. So that book was a social scientist attempt to say religion has really positive benefits. I'm not, I'm not, interested in the theology. It's just, I'm not, I'm not a theologian, so I'm not trying to say whether this or that religion is particularly, this or that denomination is, you know, got the truth, but I am trying to say that there's something about being a religious community that encourages, not perfectly, of course, all religions have the concept of sinners, so they're, not everybody who gets exposed to religion is nicer, but on average, people who go to church often or, or synagogue or whatever are a little more likely to be nice. However, that book also warned, and this is now about 10, 15 years ago, that book warned that a particular set of religion, a particular set of denominations in America, they weren't any better at encouraging do-gooding, but they had gotten very deeply involved in politics. I'm talking about the religious right, sometimes called evangelicals, but that's a misuse of the term evangelicals because there are plenty of non-deeply conservative evangelicals, but there is such a thing as a religious right. And what we warned in that book is that the religion, the views of the religious right, which were so censorious and, and trying to impose their own views of a particular set of issues, particularly about abortion and homosexuality and sex, really basically their, their own views about sex on everybody else. I, I'm not pro or con abortion or pro or con, or con uh, anything like that. But I did say, we did mm-hmm. say, that's driving lots of people away. It's, it's not that people are leaving church because they're not religious. They're leaving church because the religion that has got the most headlines nowadays is this religious right, and that is not a religion that will appeal to young people. That's what we said 15 years ago. 
And we were dead mm. right. What's happened in the last 15 years mm. is a flood of people away from religion. It was not secular people. And you think that's the main reason? Because they're socially out of touch? Yes, absolutely. That's not just my view. The data show that's very clearly. Mm. The people, the young people who are not mm. going to church are not nowadays, but might have been going to church 20 years ago. The reason they're not there is because their impression of religion is that religion is censorious and political. And they don't want, they didn't want to go to church for the politics. They wanted to go to church for the, for the connecting with other people who, who are religious. And so in one sense, I agree with Bork. It's a shame in my view. I'm not trying to convert people to religion, but from one point of view, it's a shame that people have left, people who would otherwise be in church have not in church. He's right about that, because I say being in a being involved in a church in general is makes you a nicer person. But it was not the seculars who did that. It was the, the religious right that did that. When we said this mm. in the book, American Grace, it was still a little controversial. What I'm saying now is just not controversial at all, honestly. If you could, I could give you a hundred cite, citations. The title for this is The Growth of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, The Growth of People Who, when they're asked about what religion they have, say none. Mm -hmm. That's enormous. And among young people now, it's maybe up about 50% of all young people now say they're nuns. And where did that come from? It came from the religious right. Do you see a chance of it being reversed? Uh, I, I have long said that that depends upon whether the most religious people in America want to save America and save souls or whether they want to follow a political agenda. They can do one or the other. There are a lot of religious right people who think that their particular political agenda is more important than anything else, and they're giving religion a horrible name, and that is causing people to flee from religion. It's unfortunate that America has become a less religious place, but we know where the blame for that lies. It lies in the people who, beginning in the 70s, began to exploit religion for political purposes, and they knew what they were doing. They were trying to help a particular part of the political spectrum gain an advantage, and in the short run that worked. They, there was the religious right, but in the long run, it was it, it, it was, <laughs> how can I put it? It was unchristian. For whatever, whatever it's worth, that's my view of how we got to where we are. That's a very interesting perspective. And I mean, there's certainly a degree of truth to it. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Bob. And I didn't mean to upset you earlier. I just wanted to throw out my theory and get your perspective on it. And so thanks for bearing with me. I'm glad you did. It's been good talking with you. It's been very good to talk with you too. It's been a great privilege and enjoy the rest of what's left of your day up there in New Hampshire. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.